Thanks, AJ. Well, good morning to you, all right? Welcome to Citadel Square, if you're new. Uh, my name's Steve, one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in your New Testament. Uh, Luke is uh, a consummate writer in your New Testament. In fact, he writes more than the, more verses by volume than the Apostle Paul does in both writing Luke and Acts. And in our study of this book, we have come to uh, what seems to be a section here that is almost a throwaway section. It, you can read it and really feel like uh, we don't really know why it's there. What's really the point of taking time to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth having the, uh, their miracle child, John the Baptist. Uh, there's a lot of conversation in this passage, and right in the middle of it is really the fulfillment of what Gabriel has said in Gabriel's message to uh, Zechariah. If you remember just from several weeks back that Zechariah was a priest who went into the holy place to burn incense, and he encounters uh, the angel Gabriel who gives him a message. So in preparation for moving our way through this text here, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 66. I want you to turn back just one page in your Bible to Luke chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Uh, there's tension in the story that we're going to look at here today. And as I said, it's a tension that you can almost read right by and pay very little attention to. But the tension in this story comes with the fulfillment of Gabriel's words. Gabriel gave a message to Zechariah back in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. If you're there, you all there? Did you turn back to it? You with me? Luke 1, look at verses 13 and 14. Here's what the angel said to him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and mercy, I'm sorry, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And what you have right in the middle of verses 13 and 14 is the tension. You go, well, Steve, what's the tension? And the tension comes right at the end of verse 13, that you will call his name John. And that may seem like somewhat of a throwaway phrase, but Gabriel's prophecy is a very particular prophecy. In fact, everything that Gabriel says has to be fulfilled. Would you agree? When an angel shows up and gives you a message, that angel better be 100%. Because he says, I stand in the presence of the Almighty, and I have been sent to give you this message. So that everything that Gabriel has said has to come through and has to be fulfilled. And that's the beginning of what you're going to see here as Luke weaves this story together for Theophilus, he has to show you a fulfillment of Gabriel's words. So Gabriel's words have to be fulfilled, and they're about to be fulfilled in the life of Zechariah and the life of Elizabeth. Now up to this point, we've had the angel show up privately, right? The angel, Gabriel shows up privately to Zechariah, and then the angel shows up privately to Mary, and then we have our very first conversation about the angel's words between Elizabeth and Mary. And then Mary writes this beautiful song that we looked at last week that spoke about the mercy of God, that spoke about the faithfulness of God to his promises all the way going back to the person of Abraham. But today, what you have is a first in Luke's account. And it's the first time other people are going to be brought into the story. And other people are going to hear this message. And other people are going to experience what has only been experienced in private by Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary. You with me? So this moment is an important moment. And it's important for Elizabeth. It's important for Zechariah. See, it's one thing for us to, you know, we all, we come to Christmas time and we sing songs that we all know and that we all love. And for us who are Jesus followers, it's one thing to believe what the Bible says about Jesus and who he is. It's, it's one thing to feel certain intense emotions as the Christmas season is around us. But essentially, if you were to boil down the life of a Christian, the faith experience of a Christian... The Christian's experience and walk of faith is essentially this, believing what God has said 
and acting upon the truth of what we know about what God has said about himself and about us, right? That's essentially what the walk of faith is. We need word from the outside, from the perspective of God himself, to inform how I see God, how I see man, how I see sin, how I see redemption, how I see who I am, how I see the problems that need to be changed in my life, and how the gospel is the solution. And therefore, I begin to walk in my Christian life on truth that God has revealed to me, not things I feel. Are you with me? So far. So what you're going to have in this moment with Zechariah and Elizabeth is a decision that they're going to have to make. Right in the middle, this, this section of, your, uh, of this story is all about conversation. Everybody's talking. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got something to say. You're essentially at a baby shower where everybody's excited. Everybody's thinking about the future. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's thinking and dialoguing and rejoicing and speaking. But right in the middle, right in the center of this story is a couple who decides that they're going to have to disagree with what is common and customary because of what they believe about God. What they believe about the promises that God has given them. That's the tension. So let's pray. And let's ask God for his grace as we look into this text. Father, for these few minutes as we gather and our uh, hearts and minds are tuned to sing songs about the incarnation, as we are reminded of what you have done 2,000 years ago to send your son to step into creation, fully God, fully man. Father, would our hearts and minds, our attention and our affection be oriented around the beauty and the wonder and the miracle of the incarnation. And as we look into this text, Father, I would pray that you would give us courage to stand in our own day, to be peculiarly different in what we believe and what we say and what forms the convictions of our homes. So, Father, bless us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, if you're in Luke 1, 13 and 14, you can keep your finger there. We'll be back. But just turn one page over, and we're going to be in Luke 1, 57 to 66, like I said. Y'all there? 157? Okay, let's go. Now the time came. Now I made this point several weeks ago. We're three words in and I got to start talking. I'm sorry. I can't even. It's part of doing what I do. The time came. Now if you know how Luke has been counting time in this story, he hasn't necessarily been counting time according to history or according to political rulers. Luke has been counting time according to one particular event that that happens here in Luke 1.57. So Zechariah gets the message from the angel Gabriel, and the angel Gabriel tells him, your wife is going to have a son. uh, Zechariah doesn't believe it. He is mute. He gets out of his responsibilities as priest, and he goes home, and he tells Elizabeth, we're going to have a baby in his own way, however he does that. And Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And it says at the end of that section that Elizabeth hid herself for how long? You remember? She hides herself for five months. She's quiet for five months. Then Mary shows up. Mary and Elizabeth talk. Mary writes her song. And at the end of our time last week, if you'll just look at 156, Mary remained with her for about how long? Three months. months. So you do the math. How close are we to having a kid? You're at 36 weeks. You're not running very fast. But Luke makes it a point to make sure that we know from the time that Gabriel gave Zechariah the message, the stopwatch has started. And we're watching five months from the conversation. We're watching three months until Mary leaves. And now 157 opens and it says the time came. Everybody's been waiting. We've been feeling the baby kick. We've been experiencing the miracle. We've been hidden uh, from other people. Zechariah hasn't been able to speak. It's as if God is working in secret until the time comes. So don't miss the element of here's the first fulfillment of what Gabriel has said. 
They've gotten pregnant. They felt the baby kick. She's getting more and more pregnant. She's starting to show. And now the time is here for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. Did Gabriel's word come true? Yes. So you want to write, if you want to write and make notes in your Bible, there's promise fulfillment number one. The time came, just as Gabriel said. She bore a son, just as Gabriel said. Verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives. Now we're introduced to a group of people that haven't been introduced into this story at all, but it's the people who live around Elizabeth. It's people that she's familiar with. Elizabeth no doubt has John at home. So in the midst of watching this story, you're introduced to people who are in her neighborhood, in her zip code, people who have observed that something is different about Elizabeth. Elizabeth, she's pretty old. Zechariah, she's pretty old. How is in the world that she now is pregnant? How is it now that something is happening that arguably is pretty odd, right, for the elderly to get pregnant? Yes? Yes, it's odd. And her friends and her neighbors and her relatives are observing this change of what is happening in her life. And now we're introduced to her, the group of friends, the group of relatives, the people who know her the best, the people who've heard her lifelong prayers for infertility and have seen God do something that is incredible. Look at the remainder of the verse. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Boy, now that's an understatement, Luke, isn't it? How do the neighbors and the relatives interpret this profoundly strange event? They interpret it as friends and neighbors would. They say, the Lord has done something in your life that's incredible. And if you were with us last week, you would remember that mercy formed the foundation of Mary's song, didn't it? That his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You remember that? That God had showed mercy to his servant Israel. So here in the midst of this story are the friends and the relatives experiencing now something that they can only interpret as God's hand in their life. But would you think that the neighbors and the relatives know what is happening? Would you think that they understand that this person is the pivot between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I would argue no, and you'll see that as this passage goes forward. But as much as they can tell, the neighbors and the relatives say, this is an act of God. This is incredible. This is wonderful. You are experiencing, Elizabeth, the covenant faithfulness of God that we have heard of that forms the backbone of our faith. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, you are walking in this experience where the Lord has shown you great mercy. You have had a child in your own age, this old age. This is incredible. This is impressive. And what do they do? Look at the remainder. He'd shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, if you want to go back to Luke 1, verses 13 and 14, is this something that Gabriel said? Okay. Track with me. So we have a fulfillment of what Gabriel has said. He told Zechariah, you will have joy. And many will rejoice at his birth. So here's this birth moment. The son is here. The promise that Gabriel gave has come true. They've birthed a healthy baby boy. You got friends. You got relatives. Everybody's excited about this moment. Everybody is rejoicing with Zechariah and Elizabeth. But there's going to be a conflict. There's going to be a tension in this story. Watch how Luke captures this for us. Look at verse 59. And on the eighth day... They came to circumcise the child. This is commanded in the book of Leviticus, and it's commanded as Jews would do all the way back into Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, Abraham and Sarah have yet to have the child of the promise. They have yet to have Isaac. And God gives a sign of the covenant that God himself will fulfill the promise that he has made to Abraham at least 25 years. Or up to that point, he hasn't fulfilled yet. God has appeared to Abram several times in Genesis 12 saying, leave your family and your kindred and your country and go to the land that I will show you. In Genesis 15, he makes him go outside and look to heaven. And now God makes a promise and a covenant saying that I will be faithful to all the generations that will follow. 
And then in Genesis 17, he gives a sign of circumcision. The sign of circumcision essentially is a sign of the promised child that is to come. So this is a normative part of the Jewish people's faith. If you know anything about Genesis chapter 17, there are two things that happens. One is that God gives the covenant of circumcision. Number two is that Abram's name changes from Abram to Abraham. So there's two things that happen in Genesis chapter 17. One is circumcision, the sign of God's faithfulness to his word. I promise, Abraham, you are going to have a son. And number two, I'm going to change your name from exalted father to father of many nations. So would you agree that when God changes somebody's name, it's important? Yeah. In fact, naming for God is a very important thing. There's seven people in the scriptures who are named before they are born. The last two are John and Jesus. So it's a significant moment, the naming of the son. So on the eighth day, they come to circumcise the child. And it seems that in Jewish customs at this time that the circumcision would happen and coincide with the naming of the son. That's at least what we can interpret from this. They come to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. So you have what seems to be a normal event in the life of families. You have friends, you have neighbors, you have a child, albeit a miraculous one with an elderly couple. They get ready to circumcise the child according to the custom that has gone back at least 2,000 years. And they get ready to name the child. And everybody in the naming process has an opinion. This is what we think we ought to do. Here's how we ought to name this child. Usually the naming of the child would go back either to the father or to the grandfather. But if you're an astute biblical reader, you would know that immediately in verse 59, we're introduced to the tension, are we not? We as the reader know something that is wrong in this situation. At this baby shower, everybody's talking, everybody's rejoicing, everybody's excited. Everybody's doing things that we've always done in the past. We always come and we bring the whatever you bring to a baby shower. And you come and you circumcise the kid and then you name the kid and we always go with what the father's name is. So you as the reader are introduced to something that now is going against the biblical revelation that has been given from the angel Gabriel, right? But everybody's got an opinion because it's all customary. It's all normal. We've always done it this way from generation to generation to generation. So here's your question. Is it disobedient to name the boy Zechariah? I mean, that's a pretty good name. You know what Zechariah means? It means Yahweh has remembered. That's a good biblical name, isn't it? In fact, Zechariah and Elizabeth would go, this is, a, this is a great fulfillment. God has remembered us. He's remembered the faithfulness that he's given to the people of Israel. He's been faithful to promises going all the way back to Abram. That's what we've heard even in Mary's song. And she gets ready to leave, and now everybody is thinking, Zechariah, Yahweh remembers. What a great, biblical, strong, faithful name. And if Zechariah and Elizabeth wanted to, They would say, we want to be remembered. We want our name to go forward. We want to have faithfulness to the heritage and the generations that have gone back to my dad and my granddad. Granddad might even be there. Maybe he doesn't have his dad. I mean, his dad's not alive. He's old. Probably not. But you can feel the social tension, can't you? Well, you got to name him after. Elmer. He's your great-great-granddaddy. You know how faithful Elmer was. Elmer loved the Lord. Elmer's got a rich history in our family. Elmer was a man of great tradition, great principle, really good name. Elmer, strong name. Elmer, what's it mean? I don't know, but Elmer, it's what it is. What about Zechariah? Zechariah sounds good. Yahweh's remembered. It's a faithful moment. Anybody, you have any, do you have families? Do you ever have any tension in families over the way that we do things? No, two people said no. So the rest of you, because your family's here, I'll just presume that it's yes. You can feel this, can't you? 
Everybody gathered, everybody rejoicing, everybody excited, everybody going to name the kid. We all going to, Zach, Zach, it's you. Zechariah, it's going to be you. We're going to circumcise him and we're going to call him Zechariah. You remember the story of, um, you know, you go back in the story of, of Elizabeth and you go back to these great women, the matriarchs of Israel. You think about Abraham and Sarah. Sarah's womb was closed. You think about Elkanah and Hannah in the beginning of 1 Samuel. And Hannah weeps and prays and cries. And you remember the prayer that she prays. Ladies, you remember her prayer? Where she goes, oh God, if you will give me a kid, what will I do? I will give the kid back to you. That this kid might be used for every single purpose. What is Hannah doing in that prayer? She's not putting herself at the center of the story. She's taking her pain and her suffering and her unanswered prayers and she's saying, God, I will submit all of that to your plan and to your desires. If you give me a boy, I will give him back to you. And who does that boy become? The greatest Old Testament judge of the day. The one who begins the monarchy and anoints David the king. So here's Zechariah and here's Elizabeth with all of the social relational pressure of the day and doing something that's very customary, very normal. They've never done it before, though. They've never had a kid before. It's their very first and probably only baby shower they've ever had. Bringing this child of promise into the world that is the fulfillment of a promise given from the very archangel of God. And Zechariah and Elizabeth will not put their plans ahead of God's promises. They won't put their prerogative ahead of God's promises. They will disrupt this joyful occasion to do something that a lot of people in this story won't understand. Because they haven't had the experience with God that Zechariah and Elizabeth have. Have they? You think they got any friends who had kids in their old age? Any of their friends experience the revelation of Gabriel the archangel? Verse 60. All the hubbub, all the relationship, all the joy, all the excitement, all the... Whatever you eat, again, at a baby shower. Verse 60. But his mother answered, no. Now you can feel the party grind to a halt, can't you? You know, what? What? Well, we were going to name him. I mean, Zechariah's right there. What are you telling me? You're not going to honor your husband of faithfulness that you've had? What is happening in this moment? No, he shall be called John. Now, just flip back with me to Luke. Uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And let's find the, let's find the tension. You remember the tension? Verse 13, 1 verse 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Yes, yes, both happened. You shall call his name John. So Gabriel, you're telling me that we have a particular mandate from God in heaven to name this boy a very particular name. Yes. And Elizabeth is the first one to take a stand at the baby shower. She's the first one to go against what is customary, what is common in their day and in their time. She's the one who's going to take a stand and go, no, we're not going to name him Zechariah. What we're going to do is name him John. We go, okay, Steve, so what? I mean, I get it. It's not a big deal. Yeah, they got to name him John. She's got to disagree. Okay, so what? But would you agree that this is an essential part of the story? Right? This is an essential part of the story, and this, a necessary part of the story. See, a lot of times, I don't know if this is you or if you're like me. A lot of times I consider like my life of obedience, right? And we would also agree, let me ask this. We would also agree that this is a point of obedience to Gabriel's message too, right? It's a necessary part of the story. It's a, it's a distinct point of obedience to what Gabriel has told us to do with this kid. 
And for us, a lot of times when it comes to our obedience, here's what I like to do with my own personal obedience. I like to measure both my maturity, my knowledge of the scriptures. I like to weave in what God seems to be doing in the spiritual moment in my life. I like to take account of my circumstances. And I like to make obedience a really complex thing. I like to go, well, considering my maturity and the story and the particular sin struggles that I have, what my family's going through at this moment and this time, you know, what I think I'm going to do is seek the Lord and quote a proverb and try to decide what kind of obedience looks like in this situation. I'm going to pray about it a little bit more. But what this shows us is that obedience a lot of times is really pretty simple, isn't it? What do you got to do? Name the kid. What do you got to name him? Whatever God told you to name him. What, are your, what, are your, what about what your aunt thinks? Don't you have a neighbor, Dave, who really has a, he's got a dad and he's got some friends and they really are looking forward to the time when we get to circumcise Elmer over here and I may, got t-shirts made and I'm super excited about coming to a baby shower and having this celebration. And Elizabeth has to move in her social setting. She's not doing anything dramatic. She's not doing anything that's upsetting or disturbing, but she's doing something that she has to do. She has to stop the train and the conversation to be able to do something that she knows is necessary to fulfill obedience to what Gabriel has said. Do you have situations in life where you are doing more explaining than you are obeying? Do you have situations in life where you know the biblical stance that the scriptures say? But there sure is a lot of hemming and hawing. Anybody ever do that? You go, well, you know, I don't feel like obeying. I mean, it's allergies. I'm not feeling that good at this point. I know I should obey and I should give and serve and love and sacrifice for the good of my family. But man, I don't really feel like it. Yeah, I know the Bible verse is out there. I've got to think about it some more i got to pray about God's will in this situation. Do we need to pray about this? Do, does Elizabeth have to go, hey, guys, give me a minute. i got to go into my prayer closet and wonder what God has to say about this particular situation. No, she's got a command from an angel of the Lord. It ain't hard. What she's got to do is disrupt the flow of her social party to be obedient, to say something that she knows to be true about what God wants. Let me talk about discipleship for a minute. You want to disciple somebody? Start with, what are you not obeying that you need to be obeying? Isn't that a part of our discipleship? What did Jesus say? Go, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to. Or obey. Observe. I like observe. You got that Bible? Teaching them to obey what? Have you guys read that part? I'll just tell you. Here's what Jesus says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. What part of your personal discipleship involves committed, faithful, simple, clear obedience? It ought to, right? Amen? Older Christians than me? So here's Elizabeth. No, he shall be called John. They're really only faced with one singular choice of obedience, aren't they? They don't go, it's going to be Zechariah John. It'll be his middle name. (laughs) Are they doing halfway obedience? We'll give him two middle names. Zechariah Elmer John. That'll be, I like that. No. They got to do one thing. They got to hit the target at one point. Verse 61, and they said to her, hey, none of your relatives are called by this name. Is that the issue? Is Elizabeth trying to pull up some revelation of up in the family tree and remind people that, no, there's a John up there somewhere. You just don't know who he is. She says, no, I'm not making the decision that way. That's not how we're going to do things. When we have a word from the Lord, what our family is going to do is we are going to obey what God says. None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now, at this point in the story, people may be thinking, wait a minute, Elizabeth is kind of doing her own thing. 
Elizabeth isn't submitting to Zechariah. Elizabeth clearly doesn't have the same convictions that Zechariah does. I'm sure Zechariah, with the only boy he's ever had, is going to want to name his son Zechariah. I had one son. I have five daughters, one boy. What name did that boy get? He got my middle name. I, didn't, I wasn't that creative. He gets Joel. So it must be that Elizabeth is making this decision as a wife without the knowledge or the awareness of her husband. She must be doing something unique because, man, he can't talk at all. She's the talker in the family for the past nine months. She must be doing something different. So all eyes at this point now zero in on who? Are you with me? Zechariah. They all talk, they all look to Zechariah. You can feel the neighbors fade. You can feel the relatives fade. You can feel Elizabeth fade. You can feel the boy fade because who are we talking about now? We're talking to the one who has been struck dumb. The one who did not believe the miracle that Gabriel promised. And we are brought back right face to face with the one who couldn't believe what God was about to do and experience the consequences of being silenced for it. Do you feel the drama of this passage? Do you feel how now all eyes, the spotlight narrows and we're looking right at Zechariah? The guy who can't talk, the guy who didn't believe what the angel has said. And who the angel told him, you will be unable to speak until the time that my words are fulfilled. And what Zechariah lost, you know, for a lot of us, our, let me, I talked about this just to start. Our life of faith has to take God and his revelation and we have to live in light of what God says, don't we? We have to believe that God has an opinion on our life, on who we are, what he's calling us to be, and, and the kind of lives that he is calling us to live. And we're meant to live in light of his commands. But God gives us the story of Jesus to be the anchor for our faith. So that when I doubt whether or not God loves me, I go back to the moment where I go, this is how God displayed his love. He sent his son to be the one who died for me. And for all of us, our faith is built upon things that we know. It's built upon doctrine. It's built upon promises. It's built upon things that God has done. See, it's one thing for Zechariah to have a miracle message from Gabriel and go, I have no idea how that is going to happen. Do you see how old I am? Do you see how old she is? Do you think we're going to have a kid, Gabriel? You've got to be joking. And don't miss that this is a moment where Zechariah's faith has been developed. Where he went home and was intimate with his wife in faith. He went home and discovered now that she's got a baby inside her. And now he discovered as he feels her tummy that the baby is kicking. And now he comes to the birthday and the baby is born. And there it is, evidence of everything that God has said. Gabriel was right. God's promise is true. And there's one tension point where we're waiting to see, will Zechariah have the courage? He's got another shot. You want another shot? Zechariah gets another shot. Isn't that great? That God doesn't sit him down and just kill him. He goes, I got another spot for you. You failed in the past. You couldn't believe what I was going to do. Let me give you evidence of my faithfulness and my goodness that I am good in following through in the promises that I make. And I'm going to give you, Zechariah, another shot. So we're all waiting, aren't we? What is Zechariah going to do? The baby was born. Did he get unmuted then? Say no. Day one, did he get unmuted? No. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Day seven, we're waiting. He's still quiet. We go, when is, I mean, the baby's here. God fulfilled it. He came through on his promise. I get, can I be done yet? One week in, eight days in, here we go. We're going to circumcise the child. Here we go. We're going to name him. And you've got to think that Zechariah is hearing in his ears. Well, he can't hear. Don't worry about it. You'll see that in a second here. You've got to think that Zechariah is burning in his heart to talk about the thing that he didn't believe but he saw God do and now he longs to speak about. 
What will Zechariah do with his second chance? Verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet. And he wrote, his name is John. Now commentators make the point, what did Elizabeth say? He shall be called John. Zechariah doesn't say that. Zechariah already knows the name. This boy's already been named. Zechariah has no prerogative in this situation. His obedience is paramount because he knows there's only one thing that he can say. He already knows the name. He got the name before the boy even showed up. He got the name before the baby even was conceived. From the word of Gabriel the angel himself, Zechariah says his name is John. And they all wondered. See, for Zechariah, it's a simple statement, isn't it? It's a simple affirmation of what he knows to be true about what God has said. See, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, there are some things in their family that aren't up for discussion. Right? When God speaks into the middle of a family, there are certain things that we don't discuss. There are certain things that we take a stand on. There are certain things that we don't create on our own. We merely affirm them because of what God has said. What about what the relatives think? I don't care. What about what the neighbors think? I don't care about that either. What about how we've always done it? Not a problem. We don't care about that. But when God speaks into the center of a home, the home reorients around the word of God. Amen? The home has a different conviction than maybe what the neighbors, maybe what the relatives, or maybe what the customs are that we've always practiced. No, no, no. When God speaks and when God has something to say about things that are happening in our life, we take a stand on conviction. We make a confession that aligns with God and who he is and what he has said. So let me press, let me, I'm going to offend you just for a minute. Okay? You ready? Put on your seatbelt. Of all the seasons, isn't Christmas the one that comes with the most customs? Isn't Christmas the one that comes with... We don't, do, we don't put this up at any other time of the year. We don't get poinsettias at any other time of the year. We don't put Christmas lights on our home. At any, maybe you do Halloween lights. I don't know. Maybe that's a thing that you do. We don't put inflatables in our... Ah, it doesn't work either. You got inflatables for other times. Of all the holidays... Christmas is the one that comes with the most disruption to our family rhythms, right? You've got the most meals. You've got the most Christmas lights. You've got the most pies. You've got the most seasons. You've got the most Christmas music. You've got the things in the stores. You've got all of that kind of stuff. And when I read this section and I look at the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, I have to ask the question, what are we doing as Christians that would make us distinctively Christian in a world that is full of customs and practices that aren't necessarily distinctly Christian? See, Zechariah and Elizabeth's life of faith isn't in their attendance to church. It's not in their practices and the sacrifices that they've done. We know they've been faithful in those things, but that doesn't make them distinct at the baby shower. What makes them distinct in this moment is their willingness to have courage and conviction on the things that God has said. So when we prepare to gather as Christians, what about your Christmas practices are distinctively Christian? Well, we put up lights on the house, not distinctively Christian. We have a Christmas tree, also not distinctively Christian. Well, we do a manger and not a tree, Steve. Okay, you're just weird. 
We do Elf on the Shelf. We watch The Grinch. We watch Ru Rudolph. We watch Frosty the Snowman. We have so many things that are a part of our culture and rhythm as Christians. But is there something in the middle of your family and in your home where, you know what we watched this weekend? We watched uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas thing. You know when it was made? 1965. Who wasn't a human in 65? Me and, please participate, just for, just for me. Okay. And in the middle of the Charlie Brown Christmas special is the reading of Luke chapter 2. So if you come into our home, we don't talk about Elf on the Shelf. We don't talk about Santa. We don't talk about those things. We talk about the single greatest miracle of Christmas, which is Jesus who has come. That's what we talk about. And I'm not bah humbugging all that other stuff. I'm just saying what makes you as a Jesus follower who has put your hope in the word of God that Christ has come to die for you, to save you from your sins and secure your eternity. What anchors your home? And what's fascinating to me is Zechariah and Elizabeth, they've got to take a stand. Well, we've been to lots of baby showers. This is how they all go. We always take the baby, we always circumcise them, we always give them the name, and we always do what we always do. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, they can't do it. There's something too important in the pivot of human history of John the Baptist, the forerunner who is about to come. And they've got to take a stand and say, no, his name is John. Because God is doing something. God is up to something new to be faithful to his promises, to save his people, to not leave us in our sin, to prepare the way of the Lord. His name is John. Verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose and he spoke, blessing God. Now that's quite a miracle, amen? Amen. I mean, if you're around an elderly man who can't talk for nine straight months and then he starts talking and he starts praising God, that's a big deal. And you've got to think what explodes out of the heart of Zechariah, this ancient priest who has prayed and prayed and prayed and looked forward to what God would do for his people, that now God has fulfilled his promises. We're going to look at it more next week. But now Zechariah can't help himself. He writes a song. He praises God. He points people's eyes away from even John and the moment of circumcision and even his own life of Zechariah and Elizabeth and all that they've experienced from God. And he points people's minds to God. Blessing God. Look at verse 65. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. What created such disruption? Did Zechariah and Elizabeth do something incredibly, I mean, did they start going door to door and start talking about, hey, do you know Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth? No, they had conviction in their home that radiates out. It's like radioactivity. It explodes in the hearts and minds of Elizabeth and Zechariah. They say, no, this boy is John. And everybody goes, wait a minute. This family is putting their hope in something else. This family has an ambition to be faithful to God in a particular way in their day and time among their neighbors and their relatives. Fear came on all their neighbors. All these things were talked about all throughout the hill country of Judea. Verse 66. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So we read this passage, and I think for us, those of us who are Jesus followers, we need to reckon with the fact that God is calling us to walk and to speak about the truth of who he is and what he has done. Amen? That's a part of what it means to be a Christian. Zechariah and Elizabeth don't dream up any vision for John. His family has already been set. His uh, name has already been set. His ministry has already been set by the angel himself. The angel himself goes into more about his future ministry. All Zechariah and Elizabeth can do is give testimony to the things that God has done. 
Isn't that the point of being a Christian? Don't look at me. Don't look at my relative sinlessness and the ways that you perceive it. In fact, look at my failure to believe what God has spoken. Look at the faith that I need to speak about what God has done. This whole passage turns not on the faithfulness of Zechariah and Elizabeth, but it turns on the goodness and the faithfulness of God to be faithful to the things that he has spoken. Amen? Isn't that great? All Zechariah and Elizabeth can do is affirm what God has already done. But I want to ask you, maybe you are in here today and you came in the back doors of the church and you don't believe in Jesus. You don't believe in the Christmas story. In fact, you love the Grinch or you love just happy holidays or you love all the things about the Christmas season. And you love this time of the year because you love it for gifts or you love it for family, you love it for food, you love it for a variety of reasons. What I'd like to, to invite you to consider in this passage is how the emotions of the crowd changes. In the beginning, we all go to a baby shower with a brand new healthy bouncing baby boy. Isn't that great? Yay, we're all, what? What did the crowd do? They all rejoiced with her. But then, right in the middle of the baby shower, Zechariah and Elizabeth started having different opinions than what was happening culturally. They started having different choices that they were making as a family, and the change came from rejoicing now to wondering. They began to ask different questions. Well, this isn't how Christmas usually goes. This isn't how baby showers usually go. Usually I come to these, we do the circumcision, he gets the dad's name, and things go on as it all, as it is. But by the end of the time, these things, all these things were spoken in all the area by all sorts of people. The word is out. And by the end of this passage, the people who are the neighbors and the relatives who are standing outside and looking at this couple, saying they're making different choices about the names and the promises of God. They're doing things differently in our culture than we might have done them. And by the end of this passage, the emotions of the crowd has shifted from joy to wonder to fear. And I would ask you just to consider the fact that if it's true that God sent forth his son, born of a woman then your response to Christmas should not necessarily be purely joy. It might need to include wonder, as in asking deeper questions about what is happening for Christians when they celebrate the Christmas season and say that Christ has come, he has been born, he has been incarnated into humanity, fully God, fully man. Because if that's true, if it's true that God became a man, then it should cause you some fear. It should cause me some fear. Because if it's true that God sent forth his son to be incarnated into humanity, I have to start asking, why did he send his son? I have to start asking, what would be the problem that God had to come down I have to start wrestling with the fact that the Christmas season, at the same time as it's full of joy and full of wonder, also says something devastating about who I am, that I am in need of a Savior. I am in need of God who has to come down and fix this thing. So if you're not a Christian or a Christ follower, let me tell you that that's why Christians explode in song at Christmas time. Let me tell you that the reason you can hear these people in the room sing all these songs as if they don't even need the words is that something radical has happened to their life. They have discovered and come to the realization that they are sinners and they cannot save themselves. They need God to come down. They need somebody to pay the price for the brokenness and the sin and the rebellion that is in this planet. We don't just come to Christmas time saying, hooray, we can sing and eat gingerbread. We come as men and women who now reorient our lives around the fact that Christ has come. The Messiah is here. He has incarnated into humanity and he has died for our sins. And praise the Lord, our Savior has come. And the promise that we saw last week 
on this idea of fear is what I want to leave you with. Because Mary put this in the middle of her song. In the middle of her talking about her experience with God. She uses this term. And she says his mercy is for all those who fear him from generation to generation. If you've never heard the story that Christ came to save sinners, can I tell you that if you are in a place of fear and sobriety about your spiritual life, what God has for you is mercy because of Jesus. What God has for you is covenant, lifelong faithfulness because of Jesus. What God has done to send his son is to save us from our sins, which is why we sing, which is why we praise him, and which is why we confess, not that we have done anything, but we confess that God has been faithful to his word. Amen, church? Father, for these few minutes, as we have looked at this family, I pray that we would orient our own stories around confessing that you are faithful to your promises. Father, we don't look at ourselves. We come to this Christmas season and we in awe and in wonder and in joy and in appropriate fear say that we could not save ourselves. But we praise you and give thanks that in this Christmas season we confess that you have come. You have been faithful to your word. You have done what we could not do. You have sent your son fully God fully man, to pay the price for our sins. And that's never far from our thinking. It's never far from our thinking that you and your kindness chose to draw near to sinners. We didn't have to go find you. You came and found us. And for that, we give you great thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.